Look with me here at Isaiah chapter 19, verses 23 to 25. These are some of, this is some of my favorite Old Testament visions for what God is going to do in the world. There's this picture here of Egypt and Assyria worshiping God. Verse 23, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That's an extraordinary picture of what God wants to do in that day, in some future day. <clears throat> and if you understand the kind of symbolic significance of Egypt and Assyria, this takes on even greater weight. Of course, Egypt is where Israel was uh, enslaved for 400 years, where they were on the verge of being eliminated. And so Egypt becomes, after the Exodus, it becomes this kind of symbol in the writings and in the mind of Israel, the symbol for how the world wants to destroy God's people. It also becomes this, this other thing as well, because on the Exodus... The people of Israel, what do they want to do? They want to go back to Egypt. Right? They remember, oh, the garlic and the leeks and the onions that we enjoyed in Egypt and all out here, it's just manna every day, right? So it, it not only becomes a symbol for the world, it also becomes the symbol for the worldly and sinful desires that God's people have. So it, it really symbolizes, in a nutshell, the, the enticement of the world and also how the world is against us. Now, Assyria, Assyria is, of course, an actual evil empire working right now, but it also kind of functions in the prophetic literature as a symbol of that anti-God violence, that thing in Egypt where they wanted to kill all the baby boys and eliminate the, the, the ethnic identity of Israel. It becomes this symbol of anti-God violence first seen in Egypt. So it becomes a symbol of, the, of worldly power and all that we flee from in fear. Assyria becomes this kind of grim reaper character, right? Just faceless, dark, hooded, scary, big Sith that's going to, you know, eliminate us and remove us. And this is what Assyria is. And, and then, of course, in the immediate context of Isaiah 19 and 20, Egypt and Assyria are both kind of competing for dominance in this region. So that's why they're also especially important here. And now, so we've got the greatest sort of embodiment of all that is enticing and terrible about the world. And we've got this great, this embodiment of all that's, that hates God and is violent and evil and wicked. And they are, verse 25, united in the worship of God. When he says in verse 25, the Lord of hosts blesses them and says, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. I mean, what an extraordinary picture of the way that God welcomes even his enemies. Right? This is just extraordinary. And that's why I love it. But that's actually not the function of this passage in this text. Right? So the, the problem that Judah is dealing with, that Isaiah is trying to address, is not that Judah hates Egypt and Assyria. That's not the problem. 
And the solution that, of course, Isaiah is proposing is not that uh, Israel starts praying for Egypt and Assyria and and beginning to, you know, send mission trips over there. That's not the solution either. That's not the problem and that's not the solution. Here's the problem. Look with me at chapter 20, verse 6. Here's the problem. The inhabitants of this coastland, Judah and Israel, will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped. This is what happened to Egypt. Egypt, and, and you heard reference of uh, Cush. Egypt is Egypt. Cush is in uh, what Ethiopia was called. So this is sort of this, this giant kind of empire down at the northern part of Africa. The, the inhabitants of the coastland will say, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? So the problem that Isaiah is dealing with here is that Israel has put their hope Israel has put their hope for deliverance from Assyria in Egypt. Israel's put their hope for deliverance from Assyria in Egypt. So either either Egypt is going to rise up and come up here and protect us, defend us, or we're going to be able to escape. You see this how, how shall we escape. We will be able to go down there and escape in Egypt, and Assyria wouldn't have the, the guts to go down there and attack Egypt itself. So in this time of looming catastrophe and fear, the hope of Israel is in Egypt. Now the problem with that is what we read in chapter 19, verses 1 to 15. So turn back to chapter 19, verses 1 to 15. And the problem that Isaiah develops here in this vision is that there's no hope for them in Egypt. Look with me at uh, verse 1, the first four verses of chapter 19. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. God is against the gods of Egypt, And he is against their ungodly ways. That's the point of verses 1 to 4. Look to chapter 19, verses 5 to 10. Look at verse 10 in particular. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. It's because verses 5 to 10 describe how the economy of Egypt is going to collapse. And then verses 11 to 14, look at verse 11. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish, The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. So God is going to bring down the gods of Egypt. He's going to ruin the economy of Egypt. And he is going to render utterly useless the leadership of Egypt. And so in summary, in verse 15, there will be nothing for Egypt. There will be nothing for Egypt. No hope for Egypt. Not in the economic sector, the military sector, the religious sector, the Government, there will be no hope for Egypt. There will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. There's nothing that their various cultural glories, right? So the head or the tail, the palm branch or the reed, these are sort of symbols of Egyptian culture and glory. It would be similar to saying like, there's nothing that Washington DC or Silicon Valley that F-16s or nuclear submarines can do. There's nothing that the bald eagle or the waving flag can do. There's no power that they have that can save them from Assyria. So what... The problem is, of course, with Egypt is that their gods, 
Their wisdoms, their ways. That's why there's 15 verses on this. He's not just saying I'm against the gods. He's saying I'm against the entire construct. Because a culture, a civilization's wisdoms, what they think is right and good and their values, shapes their ways, how they live and how they make their decisions. And all of that flows from their their ultimate values, their connection to their gods, their ideals. So their gods, their wisdom, and their ways, though they look glorious, offer no real hope. What chapter 19 is describing is a cultural takedown because it is the culture of Egypt that Israel finds so appealing. Right? Israel looks around and they, and they compare themselves. Judah looks around and compares himself with Egypt and they just think, man, those guys are so cool. They're so smart. They're so sophisticated. They have all the answers. They have, they're really clean. They really have it together. And we... We need that. We need that. So chapter 19 spells out, extends the simple claim of chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. There is no hope in the land of Egypt for us. That's the problem. Israel has put their hope in something that can offer no hope. So now let's talk about what's the solution. Look with me in chapter 19, verses 16 to 25. And I think this is really interesting, the way that the solution is spelled out. It's kind of a, kind of a backwards way that Isaiah is explaining what Israel needs to do. So you'll notice uh, five different in that days, verse 7, 16, 18, 19, 23, 24. There's, this sort of escalates this solution. All right, so we begin, let's look at verse 17. In the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. What? what? Judah? If you look at a map of the ancient Near East, Judah is like this, and Egypt is like this. Judah is going to become a terror to the Egyptians? Judah, Egypt is going to begin to fear Judah, that's... Unusual. Then we look in verse 18. In that day, there'll be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. Some of your Bibles has a little footnote that could also be translated the city of the sun, which is actually Thebes, one of the great cities in ancient Egypt. So what what is he saying here? That some of the people closest to Egypt are going to adopt Judean language. What does that mean? Talk about that in a second. Then we look uh, into verses 19 to 21. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they'll make vows to the Lord and perform them. They're going to begin to worship the Lord, and and the Lord is going to deliver the Egyptians from their foes the way that he delivered Israel out of Egypt. It's the same kind of language. They're going to cry to the Lord. He's going to hear them. He's going to send them a Savior and a Deliverer. Right? Who did God send to Israel when they were in Egypt? 
who was their savior and deliverer, right? Moses. He's going to do that same thing now, but for Egypt. It's crazy. And then we read in verse 23, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Assyria will come to Egypt, Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship. What is He's describing how Egyptians are going to become missionaries to Assyria. And they're all going to get, go to church together. And so we come to verse 24 and 25. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. Verse 25, the Lord's going to say, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Egypt and Assyria are going to belong to God like Israel does? All right, so what is the point of this, this whole vision in the context? Here's the point. One day, Egypt is going to fear your God and desire your God and cry out to your God and be delivered by your God and worship and serve your God. They're going to leave their gods. They're going to leave their wisdoms. They're going to leave their ways for your God, his wisdom and his ways, which you already have. Why would you leave the Lord for Egypt? Why would you leave his wisdom for theirs? Why would you leave his ways for their ways when you already have what they're going to be looking for? You already have, Israel, Judah, what the great and mighty nation of Egypt this great, terrifying, worldly, glorious power, what they are going to be crying out for, you have. So stop looking there for help. Trust the Lord. Hope in Him. Stay faithful to Him. Stay His. And Judah thought that Egypt was really successful. Right, everybody on the front of all the magazines at the grocery store were all Egyptians. Right, they thought these are the people who are successful. These are the beautiful people. These are the intelligent people. Egypt's ways were just the best ways. You know, it's kind of like the way that uh, uh, Americans love British stuff. You know, we're still watching James Bond movies. You know, at Aston Martins, and we love you know the Tweed and Bangers and Mash, and you know, <laughs> we love all this stuff. Why? We, we love their culture. We think, oh, that's sophistication. That's intelligence. That's class. That's how Judah was looking at Egypt. What do we think is glorious? What do we think is success? What do we think are the best ways? The safest. The smartest. Because... When you hear Assyria marching, that's where you're going to run for hope. We saw this recently. You know, 2020, this was the big, disheartening, saddening thing that so many churches, so many Christians experienced in 2020. Was we have strong Christians, we have people who want to follow Jesus, who want to be disciples, who are reading their Bible and are praying, and as soon as COVID hits, Right within just a matter of weeks, these all of 
So many people are suddenly radicalized adherents of political ideologies in exactly the same way that non-Christians became. When Assyria began to march, and we heard it, we ran to the glorious cultures, the cultures that we value and esteem. So one of the things that Isaiah is describing here in chapter 19, right? We need to understand, God did not just give Israel religion. He gave Israel culture. He gave them a culture of God and a religious observance and wisdom, a body of how things should be and ways, what you should do. That's a culture. He gave them a culture. And that culture was going to make Israel glorious and would be used by God to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Their culture, in other words, was going to, and I'm using the language here of uh, Mark Sayers, whose book, Reappear, Disappearing Church, we read in our book club a little while ago. But Israel's culture was going to colonize the nations. And that's what we see in the vision at the end of chapter 19. Why are the people of Egypt speaking Judean language? Why is even Thebes, this glorious city of the sun, speaking Israelite languages? Because they, they say that's the good culture. We want to be like them. And so Israel's culture is colonizing the world. The problem, and what chapter 19 verses 1 to 15 is all about, is saying Israel, instead of colonizing the world with their culture, is being colonized by the world's culture. They're looking at Egypt's economy saying, oh, that would be nice. They're looking at Egypt's wisdom and their princes and their leadership saying, we should try that. They're looking at Egypt and saying, that's the better culture. The world's power, their wisdom, their values, those are the things that are cool and smart and good. And so they have come to believe that their hope is going to be there as well. That's the glorious culture. That's where hope is going to be found. But what does our passage say? It says that those who put their hope in the world's powers and wisdom and ways will come out, described in chapter 20, verses 3 to 5. As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. So we don't think that Isaiah actually walked around totally naked, but probably like in a little sumo getup or something, um, barefoot, like, you know, something. It was obviously a little bit imp improper, but probably not totally naked. I just had a parent-teacher conference this last week. Can you imagine going into a parent-teacher conference and the principal says, well, I'm glad that you're here. I want to talk to you. There's, there's a group of students here who are um, walking around without pants or shoes, and your kid's been hanging out with them. He's, he's joining the pantless, shoeless gang. <laughs> right? You get home, and you sit down with that kid, and you say, hey, what are you doing? They got no pants. They got no shoes. I mean, you want to be like them? That's the point of this. That's why Isaiah is walking around naked and barefoot. He's God saying, really? You want to be like them? The no pants, no shoes people? 
He's saying that glorious culture is a short-lived sham. And they're going to be pantsed. And they're going to be embarrassed. And indeed, right, their, their powerlessness, and we see this in our culture as well, the, the, the glory of the world is exposed. Their powerlessness is exposed by every mortal threat. So whether we're talking about COVID, Afghanistan, September 11, we're talking about hurricanes, we're talking about hackers, right? These things just happen, and afterwards everybody's like, why didn't you? Well, because you can't do anything about it. Because they can't stop these mortal threats to their culture. They don't have that freedom, that hope, that power. And their hopelessness is exposed by every empty success, right? Every memoir and biography that comes out of Oscar winners and, and major league sports champions and C-suite level guys who finally get there and they make it and then what? They wake up with a hangover the next day and they say, is this it? Is this it? This is what I knocked myself out for, sacrificed all those relationships for, spent my whole life to achieve this. Their powerlessness, their claims to glory are exposed by all the darkness. You go to any glorious city, you want to talk Tokyo, London, wherever you want to go, it's beautiful, it's the shining example of modernism, and what are you going to find as soon as you peel back things a little bit? You're going to find the most heinous and disgusting wickedness and violence, addiction, darkness, you're going to find so much death. Because the reality is, however much we'd like to keep a shine on it, Assyria comes for us all. Assyria comes for us all. And so the point of, the point of Isaiah 19 and 20 is Isaiah is just saying, listen, look at what you've got. Look at what you've got. Chapter 20, verse 6, The inhabitants of the coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped. Shoot. Compare that with chapter 19, verse 20. Midway through that verse, it says, When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender and deliver them. This is what happened to those in whom we hoped. Those who cried the Lord will be delivered. Look at what you have. And what do we have? We have this. We have the Lord's Savior, the Lord's Defender, who will deliver us. And what's his name? We have Jesus. We have Jesus. We have so much in Jesus. We have his character. What kind of character is your savior and defender and deliverer? He's good. He's reliable. He's, he loves. He's full of peace and joy that spills over and he shares with everybody he comes in contact with. What are his attributes? It's nice to have a personality like that, but what can he get done? How about all authority in heaven and on earth? How about all wisdom, all knowledge, all insight? He knows everything, understands everything, and knows exactly what to do and has the ability to do it, and he's going to do a good job at it for our sake. We have his gifts. All that he accomplished in the gospel, he hands off to us through the work of the Spirit. We have his promises that we know now are going to be a sure thing. We have his presence with us every step of the day. We have his people to surround us. His ways are the best ways. The way of salvation. The path of life. He, Jesus, is our hope. Jesus is the hope. 
Now, to some extent, this is just developing that same thing that Kyle brought up this morning in Psalm 73. I looked at the prosperity of the wicked. I looked at their culture, and I got sick. And I thought, what am I doing being a person of faith? But then I discerned their end. And I thought, oh, thank God. Thank God. They can't withstand the mortal threats of life. They can't withstand the empty successes of this life. But we have, in God's word and in the good news, we have the hope. So the question that Isaiah is asking Israel is, why, why turn to the world's best? Why turn to the world? Why even turn to the world's best? Because the point of that vision, Egypt and Assyria, even the world's greatest empires don't have what you have. They're going to come knocking, asking for an education in what you already have. We have already found what they're looking for. And it's everything I can do to not sing this in the U2 song. We've already found what they're looking for, and maybe even a better way to say it is we've already been found by the only Savior. This is in, in verse 25 of 19, when he calls Israel my inheritance. It's the Lord saying, you're mine. I got you. And that's what's happened to us. You know, we all feel drawn to the world. We all feel drawn to the safety that the world offers, the immediate pretense of safety. I'll take a pretense of safety over whatever this is any day. I'll take a pretense of comfort and peace over this. But that's all it is. And we already have what they're looking for because we have Jesus. In John chapter 6, at the beginning of his ministry there, in John, Jesus, uh, of course, he's doing some amazing things, right? He just blows up on the scene. And he's, this is right after he feeds the 5,000 or the 15,000, however you reckon that. It's this huge, amazing thing. And huge crowds are coming out. And then he turns and he says, hey, did you like the fish dinner? Next, we're going to eat my body and drink my blood. And everybody's like, what? <laughs> so we come to the end of John 6. And it says, after this, after he says all this stuff, many of, many of his disciples turn back and they no longer walk with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Now listen to what Simon Peter says. And Simon Peter answered, and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is something that we need to regularly recall. In that day they will say, this is whom we hoped. This is the one in whom we hoped. Versus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? You know, it, it can be hard to follow Jesus. In Jesus' own story, right, the, he turns to these guys, are you 12 going to leave me? It can be hard to follow Jesus. And of course, by the end of the gospel, according to John, it's going to get a lot harder. It's going to get so hard that Jesus himself is going to have some hard questions about whether this is the best way precisely or not. But Jesus goes on and he walks that way and he, he follows the Lord's will because why? To whom else are we going to go? The Lord our God is the only one with the words that give eternal life. You have the words that give eternal life. And Jesus proves this. right? He proves that God has the words of eternal life because after Jesus dies, God says, come on back. And Jesus comes back and he's really Alive, He has the power over mortal threats. He has the ability to give hope 
to those who are facing COVID, Afghanistan, September 11th, whatever travesty, personal or national, we're facing. He has the hope. I was listening to a a conversation with Tim Keller this last week, and he said, he was talking about his his own personal struggles, battle with cancer, and how the, the hope of the resurrection really came to him in a fresh and powerful way. And he said, if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then everything's going to be okay. If the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then everything is going to be okay. And that is what we have underneath it all. Where the world opens up and looks and sees nothing but a gaping void, we have that good news. So life is, is, can be weird, life is, is, can be hard, and of course we know that Assyria is coming for all of us. Black hooded and with a giant Sith. What are we going to do? What is going to be our Savior, our Defender, our Deliverer in that day? Now I want to talk about, I want to bring the, this question of culture back in for a moment at the end here. What are we going to do? Who are we going to turn to? You know, the culture of the world has all the appearances of power and glory and hope, right? They're pouring billions of dollars into appearing like they have power and glory and hope, but they don't have it. They don't have it. Christ alone brings this hope. He is the hope, and that is the foundation for our culture. His words of life, and so we we put our faith in Him. That's why our culture is a culture of hope, Our culture is a culture of faith in Him because He has the words. Just like Egypt, as soon as they grew to fear Judah, they wanted to learn the language of Judah. They wanted to learn the language of Judah so that they could begin to worship the God of Judah and follow His ways. We have the language. We have the language of hope. We have the language of life because we have the words of life given to us by the Lord in Jesus Christ. And so we can, we can be a culture in this world of hope, of faith, because we know the Lord is our God, because we have His wisdom in Christ, and because we follow His ways as we follow His Spirit. Trustworthy and true. We have the thing that the world cannot have. We have real hope. We have a reliable faith. Our faith is not in folly. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Savior, the Lord's Defender is the only Deliverer. He's the only hope that the world has. There is no other. And friends, you and I, we have found, we have found what the whole world is looking for. We have been delivered by Jesus. We have been found by Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we feel the crisis that Israel, that Judah is in, in ourselves. We too are very much enticed by the offerings of comfort and security, the, the promise of glory and hope and power that the world makes. We are surrounded by this. We are surrounded by promises and performance that's trying to convince us that the world's ways are the good ways. And it's so easy for us, when we think of the difficulties in our life, when we think of the hardships of following Christ, 
When we think of the future, we think, I want what the world wants. I want what the world has. But what this passage reveals is that we already have what the world is going to want. We already have the words of life. We already have a Savior who has delivered us and will. And so, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We ask that you would draw us into him by your Spirit, that we would be his people, his inheritance, and that we would be a people who embody his culture of hope, of faith, of grace, truth, love in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.